All right, if you want to open up to Revelation 1, start here before we read as kind of just a review. Um, going through Revelation and just kind of gave two introduction, two part introduction, just talking about the overview. Uh, we went through the whole book and kind of a large overview of each chapter and all the different uh, pieces and talked about how each one we can ask the question, what's the central thing? And the central piece and the central message of Revelation is right there in the title, the revelation of Jesus. And Jesus is a central message and the word revelation just means revealing. And so the word apocalypse, we hear, hear the word apocalypse and we think the end of the world, it's, it is about that, but it's the central thing that it's revealing is Jesus. And the really, the big part about the end of the world is Jesus is going to come back and we're either going to be with him or be apart from him. And so we talked about that and went through kind of the whole book just super, super briefly. Each one of the pieces are even the most strange, like the beasts and all those things are always contrasted to Jesus. And then we just talked about the themes, really, the main themes uh, last week of the book of Revelation and how, in general, in American Christianity, we focused on, unintentionally, I think, the things we disagree on, like the millennium or the tribulation or some people believe in the rapture, things like that, and made those the big things. Whereas we looked at kind of the Venn diagram of, of the basic positions, how all the important things, not, um, all the most important things and the most central things are in the middle. The outside, the other things are not unimportant, but they're not the most important. And we just talked about how all those central things are about Christ. And so that's kind of where we're at right now. And we're going to go through uh, nine verse nine to the end of the chapter this first vision of Jesus which fits in kind of just backing up the points that we already talked about that what's the purpose of this book what's the central message it starts right here with a vision of Jesus and we see in this vision a lot of those if not all of those same main points we talked about last week of the message of revelation right here at the beginning so we're going to read through this and then it should sound familiar because we've kind of covered a lot tried to give an overview of where we're going. And the reason, uh, one of the reasons I felt like that's important is it's almost like when you have a building, you build a scaffolding. So when you get to building the building, you have that support there. And I'm hoping that the overview will help us as we go through Revelation that you'll have this larger overview, the kind of a scaffolding to know, oh, this is where this fits. Oh, this is why this is here. Oh, this is how this fits into the larger picture. And so... um that was kind of the purpose there, and that will make it feel kind of repetitive. Well, haven't we already covered this? Yeah, and in a sense, we did. We covered the whole book, and yet we're going to go in and fill all the details. Start with the scaffolding and then go in and fill in the details as we go along. So let's hear, read together Revelation 1, starting in verse 9, all the way to the end of the chapter. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, or the suffering, and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, 
to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he yelled seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, and those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay. So. Again, a little bit of review, but kind of to go over where we're going to go this week is the first thing, the first question we're going to ask is what was going on here in this first century context? And we're going to start there and then we're going to work through that and then try and build a bridge to our context. Uh, we talked about how these are real churches. These letters that we're about to read were written to these real churches in Asia, uh, specifically Turkey and what was going on at the time see the context there, and then apply it to our lives, because it's not just for them, it's also for us. But we'll, we'll start there. And to do that, there's going to be two pieces that come up over and over in the book of Revelation, but also in this section. That there's Gentiles, and in this case, they're living in, in the Rome, the Roman Empire, and there's also Jews. Um, and so, there's these two kind of layered contexts. They're immediate cultural context and the backdrop of the Old Testament and the culture that this writing is coming out of. Jesus it was a Jewish man, uh, God in the flesh, who revealed himself uh, to Abraham. That same God became a man, Jesus, and lived and died for our sins. And so these two contexts are there, and they're not... It's not necessarily saying that all the people in each one of these churches were Jews. There might not have been very many, but even the Greeks that became Christians to these little churches went back and reread the Old Testament. And so there's these, these layering of context. And so as we look at this vision of Jesus and as we go through the book of Revelation, we're going to see over and over references to the Old Testament as well as contrasts to the culture in Rome and the culture they were living in. And so as we read through this vision of Jesus, both those will come up over and over. And I'm just going to give a little caveat here that if I asked you which book in the New Testament has the most Old Testament uh, allusions, not necessarily direct quotes from the Old Testament, but uh, refers to not necessarily word for word the Old Testament the most, I wonder if you would have said Revelation. <laughs> Uh, Hebrews, you know, might in your mind come up, but there's so many references that seem to be referring to Old Testament passages uh, that one 
commentator I read said there's over 400 allusions to Old Testament passages, not necessarily where they're quoted, but where they're, they're, um, paraphrased or they're alluding to an Old Testament passage in this book, in the book of Revelation, which there's only about 400 verses. So that's a lot. So as we read through this, as we read through this vision of Jesus, passages from the Old Testament might come to your mind. And I may not even have time to cover all of them. I'm just going to highlight some of the main ones because there's so many and that, that come up over and over. So I'm just going to put that out there that as we read through Revelation, I, I would be very surprised if something doesn't come to your mind. Oh, that reminds me of this part from the Old Testament. And I may not have time to touch it just because there's so many uh, like that. So the first thing we're going to look at is this vision of Jesus. And let's start with the Old Testament, how close tied this vision is to some passages in the Old Testament. If you want to turn with me, I'm going to read from Daniel 7. This is I won't make you turn to all these verses that I referenced, but this one's a longer passage but it's so similar and so connected that I want you to at least look look here um, with me in Daniel 7. And just think if you can, as we read through this, oh, this kind of sounds like Revelation. Um, if you see some similarities here. Let's start in verse 7. Daniel 7, 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, and, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceeding strong, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces, and it stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So you can see kind of how similar some of this is to Revelation. But now we're getting to the part where it's going to talk about um, Christ here. And as I looked, the thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A steam of fire issued and came from before him a thousand thousand served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him and the court sat in judgment and the books were opened and i looked and then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking and as i looked the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire as for the rest of the beasts their dominion was taken away but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time and I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion was an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. And I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts of the four kings were to arise out of the earth. Okay, we'll stop right there. I read a little bit more just because you can kind of see how similar to Revelation a lot of those images are. But today specifically, let's talk about Jesus, this vision of Jesus. And we talked last week about several of the questions you know that we'll ask going through. One of them is, what does this passage show me about Christ? And there's a lot here. Um, and the way I'm planning to do this is going to go kind of quickly because eventually we're going to recover a lot of these things. 
So there's going to be a lot here today. Again, like I said, uh, I'm going to try and keep the messages a bit shorter. And then if you have any questions or anything we didn't cover, we can we can talk about it. And I may say, I don't know. Or I'm not sure. Uh, so we're going to just going to go through piece by piece this vision of Jesus and talk about some of the Old Testament parallels, some of the significance, and maybe as well as the context with Rome. So let's start with the vision of Jesus um, in the midst of the lampstands. This is verse 13. We're just going to go verse by verse here and just cover some of these things. And in the midst, this is Revelation 1. I flipped back to Revelation 1. In the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Okay, so we just read Daniel, and you notice there was one like the Son of Man in Daniel. Uh, that phrase, one like the Son of Man. And what was the one like the Son of Man going to do in Daniel? He was going to be presented before the Ancient of Days and come to him and be given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him or worship him. Same word. And his dominion will be an everlasting dominion which shall not be destroyed, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That this first section is a reference to Daniel showing that Jesus is one, the Messiah, but two, Jesus is God himself. It's very amazing when I think about passages that talk about Jesus being God or books that really teach that strongly. I don't necessarily in the beginning think Revelation, but there's a lot that very clearly shows Jesus is God in Revelation. Here comes Jesus. Uh, he's the, the Son of Man, the one coming on the clouds of heaven. One, only God really comes on the clouds of heaven, described this way too. This dominion and this worship is only given to God. This is not uh, something that where God is just anointing a Messiah. There's a question here. Well, how could God have people worship and serve this one coming on the clouds of heaven be given the kingdom? Well, it's because not only is Jesus the one like the Son of Man, He is the Ancient of Days. He is the first and the last. He's both. Um, Jesus is God Himself. And he's the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy. The kingdom of David that will go on forever and ever and ever. That's Jesus. And so we see this connection here. And it'll, you'll see it over and over here that Jesus is God himself. Very clearly from, from the references to the Old Testament that are about God applied to Jesus, but also um, the things here in Revelation. The clothed with a robe and a golden sash. There's actually several views but I'll give you the short version is I think that's probably referring to Jesus as our priest, our high priest, that the priests wore these robes. Uh, there's some other views. I'll just say that um, I'm not 100% confident if you said, well, I think it's this for this reason. That's fine. But I think that's what it's referring to. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Again, this is, I think, another reference to Daniel 7 where it talks about the Ancient of Days. It describes it this exact same way. His clothing was white as snow and his hair and his head like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Here it says his eyes. Um, again, connecting Jesus to, to this one in Daniel 7, both the Ancients of Days and the, as well as Jesus as the Messiah. God himself and the Messiah. Verse 15 his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like a roar of many waters. 
This, uh, I think, is got a couple connections here to the Old Testament. In Daniel 10, later on, I'll read you this section here, just one verse. This is talking about an angel. His body was like beryl, the face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. A lot of connections there. That's describing an angel. This is not meaning, I don't think, to reduce Jesus to the level of an angel, but it's to show that if an angel was described this way, Jesus is even more glorious. That Jesus is at least as glorious as the angels in the Old Testament. But we already know from where he started that Jesus is actually greater. That Jesus is going to be the one like the Son of Man that receives the kingdom forever and ever. So he's God himself. He's the Messiah. And he's glorious. Um, I think that's a connection as well. Uh, not only that, but his voice is similar to the voice of God in other places in the Old Testament. This is Ezekiel 43. It says, Behold, the glory of Israel was coming from the east and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. Uh, there's a lot of times where God's voice is described as the roaring of, of waters. And not only is there a connection here, I think, to the Old Testament, but there's a contrast to the Roman context that Greek gods were per- portrayed in Rome, uh, in Roman literature, like shining like the sun. Well, this is showing that Jesus is greater. Jesus is the real, true, and living Almighty. Um, he's greater than the gods of, the, of Rome that, that are not real gods. Um, verse 16, And in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. I think this, again, is another reference to the Messiah. A, a passage in Isaiah 11 talks about how the Messiah is going to come and with his mouth. Uh, the earth is going to be judged. The sword is an image of judgment. For example, in Romans, it says the, it uses the word sword basically, uh, meaning judgment. That the rulers of the world don't bear the sword in vain. When we think of sword, we kind of think of medieval. We don't think of justice in terms of law. But at that time, that was one and the same. If you committed a crime and you were to be executed, um, they would use a sword. And so, Jesus is going to bring justice. And here's a verse from Isaiah uh, talking about how the Messiah is going to bring justice, and specifically out of his mouth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, rod, not uh, sword there, with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. And this is specifically, in this section, it's talking about the root of Jesse, the Messiah, who's going to come and bring justice. Jesus is going to bring justice to the earth. And we saw that. You know, ultimate judgment. One day, everyone's going to be divided. Um, the day of judgment. And that's coming from Christ. Um, I think it would be good to pause here and just talk about this. One thing we can take, take away, I'm skipping a little bit ahead to the application, but one thing we can take away from this section in Revelation on Jesus is we don't want to flatten out Jesus. We don't want to make Jesus kind of like a cardboard cutout where it's like we only get, it's only one dimensional. We want to take all that the Bible says and receive it and believe it. And one way we can do that is by taking the justice away from Jesus. Jesus here is presented as, yes, the one coming to save us. We already talked about how he's the one that, um, purchased us by his blood. That came up earlier in the, in the chapter. 
freed us from our sins by his blood, but he's also the one with the sword. Jesus will bring justice that ultimate, ultimately all sin will be made right, either because Jesus took the sword on himself on the cross, took the sword of judgment for us, or will receive the sword of judgment. Those are the only two options. And so we don't want to flatten out Jesus. We don't want to neglect uh, to take all that he is. And this picture of Jesus is quite three-dimensional here. It's not just one flat layer of Jesus. He can't be summed up. He can't be understood just in an instant like that. And this is just one example. Okay, a couple more uh, connections to the Old Testament here, and then we'll kind of summarize it all. Verse 16, the second half, and his face was shining like the sun in full strength. We talked about how, one, you know, these Greek gods, again, uh, were described as shining like the sun, but Jesus is the real God. He's greater. Also, connection back to how Jesus was shining like the sun at the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that? When he was revealed to be the Son of God. Uh, as well as Moses in Exodus 34. Remember when God uh, shows Moses his his back? He, he His face shines like the sun. Um, that this is just a poetic way to say Jesus is glorious. He's glorious. Jesus is more glorious than the angels like we talked about. Jesus is radiating glory. Not only that, He's holy. And, you know, like we read in Daniel 7, the white garments, uh, Jesus is holy. Verse 17a, When I saw Him, I fell at His feet, though dead. One connection from the Old Testament is that when people see God and have visions like this, their response is not, I'll give you a, I'm not, if you have this t-shirt, I'm not trying to make fun of you. This is just something that we actually had when we were in youth group. We had these t-shirts that said, Jesus is my homeboy. I had a picture of Jesus, which I think whoever made that, I hope, had the right heart. <laughs> but it can kind of give an air of flippancy, you know, to Christ. Um, to put him on a t-shirt and to talk about him like that. Whereas you really don't get this sense here. You, you get a reverence, a holiness. It's like he fell down on his feet like dead. Not like, hey, what's up, homeboy? You know, it's like, I'm going to die because he's holy and I'm not. And that's what happened, you know, in the Old Testament. This happens over and over and over in the Old Testament. And just again, the Daniel connection. There's a lot of connections with Daniel here, but listen to how similar this is. So he came, near, this is uh, in Daniel, where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. So uh, he fell on his face. Again, in Ezekiel, there's another similar. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. So over and over, when people encounter God, there's so many other examples like Isaiah, but just fall on their face because of the holiness of God. This is where we don't want to, again, make Jesus two-dimensional. Jesus Is Jesus our Savior? Absolutely. Jesus is our Savior. Is Jesus love us more than anyone else? But He's so holy. He's so righteous. And that we have to have a righteous fear, an awe. Uh, to see His glory is not going to be, what's up, Jesus? You know, It's going to be falling on our face because He's Almighty God. It's both. 
you see actually both pieces here. This three-dimensional view of Jesus, not a cardboard cutout, not just one whitewashing half of the uh, attributes. Look at the next verse. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. Second half. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Both. <laughs> Jesus is is loving and just. Jesus is holy and he's near and compassionate. It's both. And we see, um, really, it reminds me of Exodus 20.20 where it says, uh, I'm not going to quote it correctly. I'm just going to look it up. But I'll summarize it. Oh, wow. Uh, I turned to Exodus 20.20 without. That's kind of awesome. <laughs> On accident. I didn't mark it. I just turned it. It's Exodus 20.20 to the page. 1,500 pages just turned to the right page. That's awesome. Okay. Exodus 20.20. <laughs> Do not fear. For the Lord has come to test you that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. There's a righteous fear of God. What leads us to not fear is actually begins with fear. God wants us to see Him for who He is. What's our response? We fall down, afraid, because we know we're not holy. And that's the moment. The moment where we fear God is the moment we can actually, He can come to us and say, don't be afraid. We have to start with the fear because we are unholy and He is holy. And when we fall down, uh, He'll come near to us. Just like we were talking about. When we humble ourselves, He draws near. And we all, when we meet God, uh, and as we're even in His presence now, even though it's not His immediate presence, we don't see Him, there's a sense in which we should have a fear of God because He is just. He is holy. He is glorious. He is other. He's so far from us. And yet, at that moment when we fear, He draws near. This is so similar to some of these other passages. Um, where he, people fall down and then there's comfort. A very similar thing happens in Daniel 10 where he falls down and then in this case the angel says to him, don't be afraid, and strengthens him. So it's, it's very, very similar. And it's, it's interesting to me, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the first and last. Again, Jesus is God. Jesus is the first and the last. Uh, the Alpha and the Omega. Again, these are passages from the Old Testament about God Himself. Isaiah 41.4 Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He. Isaiah 48.11 For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profane and my glory I will not I will not give to another? Listen to me, O Jacob, Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. Actually, quite interesting there, the connection. The first and the last. Uh, applied to Jesus. But it's God, the God of the Old Testament. Over and over, a lot of times these these idea, the idea of him being first and last comes up again with fear not, which we'll get into that kind of when we apply this. Okay. Verse 18. And the living one, the first and the last and the living one, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Again, I think this is connection both to the Old Testament and to the Greek, uh, the Roman culture there. 
Jesus is greater than these Roman and Greek gods. I'll, I I might use those interchangeably because they kind of mix together so much, which they're not actually interchangeable, but they're so similar in my mind. Um, so forgive me if I switch those around. Um, but Hades was you know the god who controlled the underworld, and Jesus is saying, no, I I actually have control. Uh, the keys are authority. I have authority over everything. Uh, he's the Almighty. We talked about that. And from earlier on in Revelation 1, but Jesus is in control from the, he's the first and the last. And that our life is not controlled by fate or circumstance or by these other Greek gods or Roman gods. Jesus is the one that's in control. Full control. He's greater. Um, it's interesting that this word Hades also just basically became to mean death. Even when they translated the Old Testament, they took the Old Testament word, for example, in Isaiah 38, um, I'm consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. When they translated it into Greek, they put the word Hades there uh, for death. And so it just came to mean death, but it also was referring to this particular Greek god. So summarize all this. A lot of connections, a lot of verses, but let's just summarize all these things about Jesus that we looked at. What does this teach me? We said one of the questions we're going to ask is, what does this show me about Christ? Christ is both the Messiah and the God of the Old Testament. He's both. Passages that were applied to to God were applied to Jesus in this passage. Passages about the Messiah, several of them were clearly applied to Jesus. He is the living God. He's almighty. Jesus cannot be portrayed as less glorious than an angel. He's greater than the angels. Jesus is also greater than the Roman gods. It is not our circumstances or some other fates or other deities that reign over our life and death. It's Jesus. He is the root of Jesse, the one who will bring ultimate justice. He has a sharp sword. He is perfectly just. And yet, he is also the one who died for us. Justice and mercy. He's not just a distant, powerful, heavenly God. He's a God that draws near. And we see both of that. Both pieces. Fall down as dead. Yet, he puts his hand on him and says, fear not. And, you know, we don't want to lose the fact that this is John who actually saw Jesus reclined with him at table, right? It's like that, he knew Jesus in the flesh so intimately. He says in First John, you know, we touched him. We saw him. Our hands have handled. And yet here he is meeting Jesus, and yet he falls down as dead. God is holy, and yet he's near. He puts his hand on him. He's compassionate. He's loving, and he says, fear not. Jesus is intimately aware and concerned about his people. He is holy. He is other. And yet, he knows us intimately. He's the one in the midst of the lampstands, which are the churches. You know, we, at the end of the, end of the chapter, it says that those lampstands are the churches. Jesus is right here near. Jesus knows what's going on in our church, in our lives, at you as an individual. And yes, is he holy? Is he other? Uh, do, should we fear? Absolutely. But yet he loves us. He draws near. He says to us, fear not that he's in control. Uh, I got a quote here from uh, uh, Lewis, C.S. Lewis, that gets this same idea across, I think, better than I, I can here. God is both further from us and nearer to us than any other being. He is further from us because of the sheer difference between that which is that which has its principle of being in itself and that to which being is communicated. It's like 
The difference between an archangel and a worm. He makes us and we are made. He is original, we are derivative. But at the same time, and for the same reason, the intimacy between God and even the lowest creature is closer than any that creatures can attain with one another. Our life is at every moment supplied by Him. Our tiny, miraculous power of free will only operates on bodies which His continual energy keeps in existence. So to summarize, basically, he's saying God is the furthest from us that the difference between an archangel, the highest angel, and a worm is less than the difference between us and God. That we're actually more different than that. And yet, at the same time, that that's true. God is so near us, more near than any other being, because He holds us in existence all the time. He knit us together in our mother's womb. He knows what's going to happen from beginning to end. He knows our hearts. He knows everything. And so, it's this strange combination. But it's a comforting combination. And it's the reality of where we live. And we don't want to lose either, right? We don't want to flatten Jesus out to one or the other. We want to still marvel and fear and be in awe and humble ourselves before Him And yet we want to receive the comfort that comes from humbling ourselves and know that God's near, that He cares, that He wants to communicate with us. And then, okay, I'm going to try and be quick here. Um, I don't want to give too, like, I'm trying to say all that I want to say, but not say so much that you can't remember (laughs) half of what I said. Um, Okay, let's just apply this to our lives. All that we learn about Christ here. What is he what is Christ calling me to obey? Well, I mean, we can apply this to ourselves, you know, fear not. Why? He tells John to fear not. Why? Because he's the first and the last. Because he's in control. Because he he died and he's alive and he has the key to death and Hades. For that same reason, we can go out into our lives and not have fear. We can trust the Lord. We can trust that though we fear God, we no longer have to fear God <laughs> because He drew near and He's the one that died for us. Just like Exodus twenty twenty talks about. We learn to fear that we might not fear. And yet, He knows us. He's, he's so far above us, but He knows us intimately. He knows our weaknesses. And this same Jesus that is ruler of all the universe wanted to write to these seven little churches in Turkey. That's amazing. And not only that, he knew exactly what was going on. We're going to read these letters where he knows what's going on in their church. He knows their specific circumstances. And that's the same for true for you and me. God knows what's going on in your life. God knows your needs. God knows your fears. He knows you intimately. It's a fearful and it's a wonderful thing. He's going to correct us, isn't he? We see that in the letters. We see that from this, you know, his, what out of his mouth comes a sword. He's going to correct us. He doesn't want sin in our life. And yet he loves us and he's going to comfort us as he draws near and we realize our unworthiness. He comes to comfort us, but we want both. It's interesting how similar this is to some of these other passages. Daniel 10, he falls down and then this is what happens. And then he heard this. Oh man, greatly loved. Fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. Very similar here to this passage. 
God loves us. God cares for us. This is just after uh, the verse we read in Isaiah 41 about I am the first and the last, I am he. Right after that it says this, Fear not, I am the one who helps you. For I, the Lord, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. <laughs> it's, it's getting all those same pieces across. Here comes God. He's the first and the last. You're so much lower than me, yet don't fear because I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to help you. I'll be your, all the God who is the first and the last is the one who helps you. Comfort, but also an awareness of his otherness. Well, we want this in our lives. All right. We want to apply this to our lives. We want to go through our lives knowing you've got difficulties. Who's in control? God. Jesus. Is he going to correct us? Absolutely. Is there a sense in which we should fall down and worship and see that he's so different? Absolutely. And yet when we do that, he draws near. He puts his hand on us. He helps us. We want to obey him. He's the king of kings. He's the king of all kings. And we want to humble ourselves. There's kind of an interesting connection here in John, uh, or sorry, Revelation 1-9, where it says, I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Partner there is the same word for fellowship. So it's kind of interesting. Fellowship in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. All these things that we talked about, we're all partners. If we're trusting Christ, we're partners in the kingdom and the suffering and the endurance that are in Jesus. We find all three. This is important. Why does, why do we have this section here? All these details about Jesus. Why? Because it's going to get tough. Our life's not going to be a walk through the park. And you know, when you think of like a, we have fellowship meals or a lot of churches have fellowship halls. Think about that. Fellowship partner in the suffering is what he says, literally in Revelation 1 9. Think about that. Our real fellowship is not just when we sit together and have a meal and everyone puts a smile on, when it's really hard. When it gets really hard and when there's suffering, that's fellowship. That's the fellowship the Bible is talking about. Fellowship in the difficulty and in the kingdom where we're pursuing Christ, we're pursuing His kingdom and in the endurance in Him. Think about that. That's kind of a different idea of fellowship, right? We all get together and we smile and we have a good meal and then if it gets hard, you know, it's like, ah, uh, I if I talk to this person, you know, there's tension or there's difficulty or I don't want to talk to them about this. That's the real fellowship. When it's hard, when there's suffering, when we're pursuing the kingdom through difficulty and finding our endurance in Jesus. That's that's literally the fellowship. And so we just want to think about these things the way God thinks about them, the way the Bible presents them, right? We want to trust Him through all the difficulties. We need to know all this about Jesus. Why? Because it's not going to be easy. And we'll see that as we get into the letters. Um, let's remind each other of these things. That we have the endurance that's found in Jesus. That it's not going to be easy, but that we can look to Him no matter what's going on. 
kind of a lot, but that's the uh, summary. Well, that's probably a good cue <laughs> to be dismissed here. All right, let's pray together. Father, we just need you. Um, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Uh, we do just want to fear you and love you. We need help. I uh, pray that we, we would be able to humble ourselves before you um, and that you would draw near to us and comfort us. I uh, pray that you would just, uh, we want, we really want these things to be real in our life. Whenever things go are hard or things are going on, we want to look to you as the one who's in control, as the one who loves us and who's for us and knows us. Uh, I pray you'd help us to do that this week. I'm sure there's going to be things this week that we don't expect or that aren't what we way we'd want it to go um, but we just ask as we encounter those things would you just help us to look to you and trust you in the midst of the difficulties i pray that our church what we would um we want to be partners in the kingdom and the endurance and the suffering uh, we need help i pray you'd help us to do that Pray you'd help us to encourage one another, remind one another of these things. Um, thank you so much uh, just for your word. Thank you for the Old Testament and the New Testament. Thank you for the ability to read it in our own language. Pray that um, just whatever was helpful is maybe one thing we could remember it this week. Um, just hand that all to you. We look to you. Amen. All right, we're dismissed.